The following audio is from Steadfast Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Steadfast Church or to partner with us on mission, visit steadfastavl.org. Morning, church. How we doing? Happy fall, y'all. My goodness, and it actually feels like fall. You can smell the pumpkin spice latte in the air. It's amazing. Uh, If you're new around here, uh, my name is Brian, as the screen says. Uh, I have the privilege of serving as a lead pastor here, and I just want to say welcome. Um, We're we're a big family, a big, dysfunctional, joy-filled, Jesus-loving family. And uh, if that resonates with you, maybe you'll belong here. I hope that you do. Um, I just hope that you'll make yourself at home, that you'll feel like you belong, um, that you'll be, uh, maybe you've already benefited from our time of worship. We'll have another time of worship after the sermon. Hopefully the sermon will benefit you as well. And uh, yeah, over time, uh, maybe you, you'll, you'll feel like this is the family you want to be part of. Um, we're in a series uh, trying to discern and understand uh, our unique cultural moment and our role in it, our place in it as followers of Jesus, um, how we can best represent Christ and his kingdom here and now in the spaces and the places in which we live. The first two messages, really, week one served as sort of a foundation for everything we'll talk about, a definition of culture, what, what culture actually is and kind of where it originated. Last week, we tried to sort of frame some walls up and we talked about three approaches to culture, uh, namely, adopting everything that comes at us from the culture or abstaining from everything that comes at us from the culture or, uh, as we learned from Jesus, maybe a a third way, a way of engaging thoughtfully and wisely with the culture around us. Today, I want to tackle one of the underlying issues that affects really every other sermon we'll we'll preach in this series, uh, and that's the issue of identity. Identity. Now, if someone came up to you, let's say after service today, and they said, who are you? I wonder how you'd respond. Who are you? Maybe some of you would say, well, I'm a, I'm a parent or a grandparent. You might say, oh, I'm a husband or a wife. You might say, you know, I'm, I work in IT <laughs> or uh, I'm a doctor or a nurse or something like that. And those are aspects of our identity, but that's not your identity, right? That's one of the huge mistakes we make in, in this world is that we attach ourselves to an aspect of our identity. But we need a, we need a center. We need a fundamental core. Uh, if you have ever built anything or uh, like a house or if you've seen like industrial or commercial building, uh, a piece of property, you'll take a look at it and they'll say, we want to do a core sample. What, what is that? Well, they dig down several feet down uh, and, and get a big cylinder of the dirt, right? That way, way down to see, is this, is this beautiful topsoil consistent with, what, with what's underneath? Is there bedrock there? Are there, you know, is there hazardous waste down below? Are, what is the core of this land and is it suitable to build on? And if we're going to build a life, if we're gonna build an identity, there has to be a core. Uh, uh, um, identity could be described like this. Identity gives us a sense of self, and identity gives us a sense of worth. It, it answers questions like, who am I really? 
And, and what's my value? And who gets to say? And so it's important that we dig down and kind of understand the, the foundation of uh, identity because it, it, it bleeds into everything else. Now, most of us, I, my contention is that we are largely unaware of the degree to which culture influences or shapes our understanding of our own personal identity. And so we're going to begin in Genesis. Um, usually we will read a passage of scripture and then I'll kind of work through it. But we're cut, because we're kind of all over the place, I'm not going to do that today. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to dig into Genesis chapter 2 and then Genesis chapter 3 and then we'll end in Matthew chapter 6. Okay, so Genesis 2 is where we're going to be if you're using our hardback black Bibles uh, in the pews there. It's page 2. And it's probably, you know, page 2 of whatever Bible you own <laughs> also. Uh, so let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then uh, we'll dive into some selected places in Genesis 2 here. By the way, um, if y'all would be praying for Pastor Jimmy, Jimmy Branch, uh, he was hospitalized late last night with diverticulitis, uh, and so I don't know yet whether he'll need surgery, but um, he's in a lot of pain, or was last night, uh, and so Renee just asked us to be praying, and I thought I'd let you know so that we can be praying for the Branch family, so let's lift them up as we go to the Lord right now. Father, it's a joy to be in your presence, and it's a great joy to be gathered together as the people of God in your presence. Ephesians 2 says that when we come together, we are being built into a spiritual house, a dwelling place for the Spirit. There is something unique that you are doing as we gather together in this room. And so I pray that we would sense tangibly the presence of your Spirit this morning. That as we open what are for many people very familiar passages of scripture that you would teach us, that you would um, not allow familiarity to breed contempt, but that you would show us beautiful things in your word this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill me and empower me and strengthen me that I might rightly divide this word and accurately preach what you want your people to hear about identity today. And Lord, we lift Pastor Jimmy up to you. We ask you to bring healing to his body, to bring comfort to he and Renee as he suffers through this pain, that you'd give doctors great wisdom um, and discernment as they care for him and know how best to treat his illnesses. But Lord, relieve his pain even now, we pray. We ask you to do what only you can do in his life and in our lives here for your glory and for our good. We ask all this in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen, amen. All right, let's just dive into Genesis chapter two. I'm gonna pick up in verse five here. You can follow along with me. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east where he put the man whom he had formed and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was Pishon and then it flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there was gold. 
and the gold on that land is good. Delium, uh, Delium and Onyx are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, uh, and the name of the third river is Tigris, and Assyria, the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And we'll stop there. The first thing I want you to see here, if you're a note taker, is the identity that we had. The identity we had. Um, I'm just going to, we're going to briefly kind of skim over chapter two here, and I'm going to point out some different things. But uh, we see from the beginning that God created mankind out of the overflow of worship and adoration and praise and love. The Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this Trinitarian God that we believe in, created everything, right? Spilled onto the pages of the scriptures is the, the description of creation. And God creates mankind. Genesis chapter 1 Verses 26 and 27 tell us uh, that he created mankind in his own image and likeness, right? And God created mankind, and he, he gave certain conditions for mankind to flourish within. I'll point them out very quickly here. Verses 7 and 8, we see that God gave dignity to the human creature. Dignity. God formed the man from the ground. You know, up till this point, everything else in creation, God spoke into existence. Let there be light. Let there be plants, right? And they just were. But mankind, God, um, one, one author said, God gets dirt under his fingernails. Like he scoops out, he forms mankind out of the dust of the ground. He gets close to him. He breathes into his nostrils and, and creates this living being. Humanity has a unique value, worth, and significance because man is created in the image of God, the imago Dei, we call it, which is, by the way, a uniquely Judeo-Christian understanding that, that all humanity has equality and worth and value and dignity as image bearers of God. That has made its way around the world and we praise God for that. But that, that ethic, that understanding of mankind bearing the image of God and having dignity is a distinctly Judeo-Christian understanding. So he gives them dignity. He gives them the human creature purpose. We saw this with verse 8. We also see it with verse 15. That he, he, he puts him in the garden... And he's given a job description. We've, we've been in Genesis the last couple weeks as well, so you've seen this already, which is one of the reasons why I want to move quickly. But he, he tells the man to work the garden and to keep it, right? To name the living creatures, to be fruitful and to multiply once he's given a wife, to, um, to fill the earth and to subdue it and have dominion over it. We talked about this as being the cultural mandate, right? That humans are uniquely called by God to make something of the world, we're given this responsibility, a purpose. So we have, we're given dignity and we're given purpose. Then in verses 9 and, verse, and, and 16, we see that God gives provision. He, God, made the trees to spring up. And the text tells us they were pleasant to the sight and good for food, which I love because this means that our God is not just concerned about pragmatism. If God just was concerned about our nourishment, he could have made, I don't know, a little pill that you swallow and it nourishes you, right? But what did he do? He created the trees that were pleasant to the sight, which means we could enjoy God's creation and good for food. Enjoyment and nourishment, he gives us provision. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man saying, you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day 
that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God gives boundaries. Boundaries. He says, do not eat of this one tree. Now listen, it's not like there were only two. He said, you may eat of, you, you can have every other tree in the garden. There's just this one that I'm asking you not to touch. Now, some of you might think, well, why would God give any restrictions, right? This is creation before the fall. Why are there any restrictions at all? And parents, ex parents know the answer to that question, don't we? Why do we have restrictions on our children? Because we love them. Because we love them. There's a boundary created out of love. And then finally, verses 18 and then 21 to 25, which we won't read, God provides a community, other human beings to be responsible to and for. He gives the man a companion, a wife. They then bear children, right? He creates a community. He gives uh, mankind a, a community, people to be responsible to, people to be responsible for, okay? And so we see that humanity uh, in Genesis 2 is in right relationship with God and with each other. And they have a sense of identity. They are holding on to their dignity that's been given to them by God. They're fulfilling their purpose that has been given to them by God. They're trusting in the provision that comes from God. They are respecting the boundaries that have been created by God. And they are in community with, which, with one another, which is a gift of God. And everything is good and everything is right and everything is as God intended it to be. There is harmony, shalom, the Hebrews would call it. And God says at the end of all that, it was very good. And then we go to page three. Then we see that crafty old serpent. And so now I want you to see here the identity that we lost. The identity we lost. Uh, look with me at Genesis chapter three. Let's read the first nine or so verses of this. And we're gonna spend a bulk of our time, not so much in the passage, but reflecting on what the passage means for us in our modern culture, okay? But let's look at the passage. Now, verse three, sorry, verse one of chapter three. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the tree of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. The eyes of both were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the cool of the day in the garden. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? The identity we lost. Now the lie of the enemy, as we see very plainly here in the text, is that our first parents would be like God. In other words, that they could establish an identity of their own apart from God. They don't need God. 
And that temptation, right, to have autonomy, to establish their own boundaries and their, their own uh, provide for themselves and all that stuff, it's so tempting, they bite, right, both literally and figuratively. They take of the fruit, they eat it, they, they bite on the lie of the enemy. And what happens, as we know, is sin enters the world. And with sin comes shame and guilt and hiding. And the shalom, the harmony of creation, is completely fractured. And since that day in the garden, all humanity has experienced an identity crisis. Now, historically, I'm borrowing heavily here uh, from Dr. Timothy Keller, um, just in case anyone's like, I've heard that before. This, okay, I'm citing my sources. Historically, or you could say traditionally, okay, humanity has reversed the order. If you remember, we had dignity, purpose, provision, boundaries, community, right? That's what God provided for us. Traditionally, even in non-Western cultures still today, we reverse the order. We start with community. We start with family. And an identity is formed as we start with family or community, and we only... Um, we say, okay, our community determines boundaries for us, right? So we, we, we belong to a family that makes me a son or a daughter or, or a mom or a dad or a husband or a wife or whatever. We, we start with a community and we say, okay, well, that community puts boundaries on me. That community provides certain things for me. That community gives me a purpose then. I fulfill my role within that community and that's what gives me dignity. That's what gives me worth. That's what gives me value. That's what gives me an identity. Does it make sense? So we reverse the order. And historically, traditionally, you only experience dignity to the degree that you were living out your purpose within the boundaries of that community. So again, even in non-Western cultures today, um, if you are a son, you are expected to be a good son, an obedient son, right? And your value is, is determined by how good of a son you are to that community. I hope that makes sense. modern or Western cultures have actually got the order pretty much right, but the wrong source. So, so our order is dignity, purpose, provision, boundaries, community. But instead of that dignity being given to us by God, we say, I give, I give myself dignity. We start with ourselves. We belong to ourselves. That's one of the fundamental lies of the world we live in today, that you belong only to yourself and so only we can bestow dignity on ourselves. Only we can determine our purpose in this world. Only we can provide for ourselves. Uh, and you can follow down the line. And so the culture tells us, hey, what you need to do, rather than looking outside yourself to your family or your community and figuring out your role and your identity within that, look inside yourself. Look deep within. Look at all your deepest feelings. Look at all your deepest desires. And once... Once you understand what those things are, because we've largely in our world today rejected any external, outside, objective truth that has a claim on all humanity, the only thing we can trust is our feelings. The only thing we can trust is our desires. And so we've rejected objective truth. We are trusting only in our feelings. And so then what culture tells us to do, what the world tells us to do is once you determine what those deepest identity, or sorry, deepest feelings and desires are, then you must Express those. You must assert those to other people, to the world around you, even if it costs you your family, even if it costs you your community. You've got to be true to yourself. 
You, you can't hold it back any longer. You've got to let it go. You've got to let it out, right? This is frozen. <laughs> Literally, if you read the lyrics to, to the song, let it go, okay? Elsa is casting off. What, what, what does it say, I think, in verse 2? Um, uh, shut it in, right? Be the good girl that you're supposed to be, right? That's the traditional identity. See? And then, and then she goes, no, I got to cast that off. I got to be true to myself. No rules, no right, no wrong. For me, I'm free. Let it go. Let it go. <laughs> well, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> so you must express those inner desires. You must express those inner feelings, even at the expense of the community to which you belong. I don't know about you, but that sounds a whole lot like the serpent to me. One author put it this way, to live authentically in today's world means to justify your own existence, to express your own identity, to interpret meaning for yourself, to judge according to your own moral compass, and to belong where and only where you choose. And if you don't believe that that's the cultural climate that we live in today, let me only point you to the top grossing film of 2022. Anybody have a guess? Top Gun Maverick. You think, well, what does that have to do with identity? It has everything to do with it. His call sign is Maverick for crying out loud. Okay? And what is he? He's a self-made man. He rides a motorcycle without a helmet. He's a fighter pilot. He breaks the rules. He makes up his own value system, even when it gets in, in trouble with the institution of the military, which in this movie is the bad guy, by the way, because Tom Cruise can do no wrong. You understand? Like, I don't, I don't know a lot about the military, but I would venture to say that if anybody pulled the stunts that this clown pulled in the movie in real life, they would probably be court-martialed. But he's the hero. Why? Because he let it go. Because <laughs> he expressed his own identity. Now here's the problem with this, um, one author called it expressive individualism, right? This, this need to define our own identity. The problem we have is that it's basically impossible to define your own identity, particularly based on your deepest feelings and desires. And I'm gonna walk you through why. Okay, I don't have titles for these, but just let's listen closely here. Number one, if you define yourself by your deepest feelings and desires, you are going to be very confused because you simultaneously have feelings and desires that conflict with each other, don't you? How many of you, by show of hands, would say, I have a desire to lose anywhere from, you know, five to 55 pounds, and at the same time, I have a desire to eat all the donuts? <laughs> okay. Those, those two innermost desires conflict with each other. They don't make any sense together. You cannot hold both of them at the same time, right? You can't. So you're gonna be very confused. Well, I, I feel two different things at the same time. Secondly, 
your inner desires and feelings are always changing, aren't they? Okay, um, I'll be 43 next week. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) If I look back on my 33-year-old self, here's one thing I know for certain. He was an idiot. (laughs) Funny thing is, my 33-year-old self could look back on my 23-year-old self and say the exact same thing. And guess what? My 53-year-old self, you see what I'm doing? And you do the same thing, right? Which means at this very moment, we're all idiots. <laughs> because we're all going to look back on our current selves and go, well, that was, I was a numbskull. Like I did, right? It gets a little better over time. It gets a little easier, I think. Uh, but certainly, like, we, we change. Our feelings, our desires change constantly. And we wanted dumb stuff back then. And certainly we don't now, but back then, Right? <laughs> We had desires for foolish things. This also means if you give yourself over to your most deeply held desires and feelings, all relationships by nature have to be transactional because you might feel differently tomorrow than you do today, which is one reason why people are putting off marriage, why they're cohabitating instead of committing by covenant to one another, why people are slower to have children, because you can't be transactional with children, right? So rather than than face a commitment, I just won't have any. Now, there are a lot of other reasons, but that's at least one of them, is that we, we view relationships transactionally, which is a real, what's very sad. Um, where am I at here? Uh, Third, is that three? Yeah, I've given you two, I got, I got two more, okay? The third one is this, you, we cannot express every feeling or desire that's contained within us, right? Because we have too many, and so we have to choose. And believe it or not, what we choose to express is influenced by the world we live in. It's influenced by our culture more than just us looking inside. I'll give you a couple examples to point this out. Let's go back to our donuts illustration. <laughs> Did you know that there are still cultures in this world who value having a little uh, extra junk in your trunk, a little extra weight on your body, because it's a sign of wealth and opulence. So given the donut and the weight loss conundrum, if you live in a culture that values the dad bod, what you doing? You eating all them donuts. Does that make sense? But here, okay, you live in our city or in Colorado or somewhere that really values health and fitness, you're gonna feel more inclined to go with that other desire because of the cultural pressure. Does it make sense? I'll give you another one. I think it was 2021. There's a uh, tennis pro named uh, Naomi Osaka. Many of you heard of her. Grand, grand uh, slam champion four, at least four times. She took a break from professional tennis in 2021, citing mental health reasons. That's a very courageous thing. I'm I'm, I'm glad she did that. But you put her in professional tennis even 10 years ago. She would have been shamed for being weak because athletes are courageous. Athletes are pushed through and suffer the pain in order to make the victory, right? But the cultural tide has changed. And, and, and largely for a good reason. We can, it, it's more acceptable to talk about mental health. It's more acceptable to talk about things like anxiety and depression. And so 
rather than being shamed, she was actually lifted up and supported. And people thought, hey, go, good for her to take a break from professional sports in order to take care of her mental health. It's a cultural thing, right? We're influenced more by the culture than we think we are. Fourthly, defining ourselves is an act of, of justification. And if we are about the business of justifying ourselves, we also must be constantly validated and affirmed. So culture becomes this vicious competition for validation. We become radically insecure people. And often, because of number three, that we can't express every desire and we have to choose one, we often will grab one aspect of our identity and we make that the sum total of who we are. For example, some of you might define yourselves largely as a parent or grandparent. That's the most important thing in your life. Some of you might define yourselves by your work and, and your deepest longing is to be really good or seen as really good at the things you do for, for a living. Often in our culture, we'll get to this in a couple weeks, we define ourselves by our gender or our sexual identity. We even call it sexual identity, don't we? Gender identity, sexual preference, right? Um, and so therefore, we cannot, we cannot be um, disagreed with. We're, we're so radically insecure, we are so fragile that for someone to disagree with us on our parenting or our work or our, or our gender or our sexuality is to dis disagree and invalidate our entire identity. It undermines who we are, who we think we are. This is, by the way, why we have no civil discourse in our society any longer, because we've moralized every aspect of our identity, and we don't know how to have conversations and disagree with each other without demonizing the other. So, to sum up, one author put it like this. Modern life feels like billions of people in the same room shouting their own name so that everyone else knows they exist and who they are. What a crushing burden. It's the identity we lost. You guys with me so far? I know this is slightly different than how I usually preach, but it needed to come this way. Okay, turn over to Matthew chapter six with me. Matthew chapter six. If you're in the black hardback Bible, that's page 761. So, our standard of living in the West continues to increase, but our quality of life doesn't. No one seems to be flourishing in this world that we live in, except on social media, of course. And we are so, as Luther put it, so curved in on ourselves that we have created a habitat that is actually not viable for humanity. It's inhumane, the culture we've created. You realize that, right? We, we built ourselves a cage that we have no idea how to get out of. And I actually found multiple articles on this. Have you ever heard of zoocosis? Okay, zoocosis is a condition, uh, if you ever go to the zoo, and you see the lions or the tigers or whatever just frantically pacing back and forth in front of the window. 
Why are they doing that? Because they're literally going crazy. Because they're not made for that habitat. They're made for something more. They're made for the, you know, outside the walls of the cage, right? And so they pace. And these articles I read said that humans are experiencing our own kind of zoocosis. Chronic stress, anxiety, depression, and this constant feeling that we are disconnected in some way from the rest of the world. Anybody? Don't have to raise your hand, but does that resonate? Why? Because we have given ourselves over to a world that has created a habitat for us that we can't live in. And most of us cannot even imagine a way out. And so what do we do? We self-medicate. We gotta have our glass of wine at the end of the day, or two, or bottle. Some of us have given ourselves to pills or weed just to zone out and, 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 and get a clear mind for a little while. Some of us give ourselves to social media or to uh, constant gaming on our machines or our phones. Some of us just randomly scroll the internet or we watch show after show after show just to escape so we can make it to tomorrow. We self-medicate. One author said we're experiencing a crisis of meaning which is ironic to me, right? Because the secular humanist culture that we live in tells us we are accidental evolutionary creatures. And yet, we also simultaneously are worried about meaning. You realize every other creature on the face of the earth is just trying to stay alive. They ain't got time to be worried about meaning and worth and identity and value. They're just trying to make it to tomorrow. Oh, it sounds familiar, doesn't it? We're the only creatures worried about meaning. We, we have this sense that our lives are supposed to matter. They're supposed to have purpose. But here's the problem. Purpose assumes a design. And a design assumes a designer. Well, that doesn't really fly in the modern world, does it? So what do we do? Could it be that God has actually placed eternity into the heart of man? In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is teaching, and this might seem like a weird passage to, to land on, but he teaches his disciples how to pray. And I want to pick up in verse 9 here. Jesus says this, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We'll stop there. Prayer is one of the most vulnerable acts in the Christian faith because it is an acknowledgement, whether verbally or just in our minds and hearts, of our dependence. And Jesus, in teaching us how to pray, says that we start like this, our Father. In other words, foundational to our identity as humans is knowing to whom we belong. And the answer is, not to ourselves. Not to ourselves. Guys, what dignity is bestowed upon you to be able to call the God of the universe, Daddy, Father, 
Um, John 1 and 1 John 3, you don't have time to, to go there, but you, you know the text. Um, they tell us that because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, that those who receive with empty hands what Jesus has done for us have the right to be called the children of God. We are his children. Jesus came. He knew exactly who he was. He knew exactly whose he was. And he lived a life as a perfect human, fully God, fully man, but he came to demonstrate perfect humanity for us, knowing, confident in his identity as the eternal son of God, right? He came and um, was tempted in every way that we are tempted to put his identity in other things. You remember the enemy coming to him, that same wily serpent came to Jesus and said, if you will change allegiance, if you will worship me instead of your father, I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus resisted every temptation perfectly. And then he went to the cross. And in going to the cross, Jesus became our substitute for all of this silly, stupid, foolish things that we do to try to achieve an identity. He took all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our guilt upon himself. And at the cross, what did Jesus do? He, he, he called God Father every time in the Bible except once. It was at the cross. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22 there, but what, what he's, he's expressing that he, in some sense, lost the Father. He became sin and lost the Father so that you and I could be welcomed into the family of God. Jesus, uh, Paul says, sorry, in 1 Corinthians 6, um, that we, let me see what he, how he says it here. Um, sorry. You, you were, you are not your own. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Jesus living the life we couldn't, dying the death we deserve, rising from the grave in order to um, pay sufficiently the penalty that was due in order to welcome us into the family. And so God, God comes to you and I, weary, exhausted, fed up sinners who have no idea who they are. And by the gospel, he breathes new life into us. Just like he breathed life into the nostrils of Adam, he breathes new life into us. And as it dawns on us who God really is, and as it dawns on us who we really are in Christ, we come alive. We come alive and we receive an identity from our Father rather than trying to achieve one. Think about it. You have a Father in heaven who loves you who made you, who sent Jesus to die for you, to redeem you, to bring you into his kingdom and into his family. And he looks at you in Christ and he says, you are my beloved son or daughter. Rest in that identity. What a privilege. What a joy. Why would we go anywhere else? Why would we seek any other identity? What more can this world give us than the God of the universe already has in Christ? So when we come to Christ, we repent. We turn away from, from trying to be self-made. 
Because it's a fool's errand. No one on earth is self-made. We come under the gracious authority of God, our Father. We seek His will, not our own. We surrender to His kingdom, not our own. We live for His purposes, not our own. We acknowledge His provision, not our own. And we live within His boundaries as His people in His community for our good and for His glory. And when that happens, you know what happens to us? We become empowered by God's Spirit to live with confidence and with meaning and with purpose and with joy as the beloved sons and daughters of the most high God. Do you want to make a difference in this world? Embrace your true identity. Live out who God says you are. And and it will be so markedly different. Everyone else is out here in this room yelling their own name. And you come in smiling because the name of Jesus is written on your heart. You belong to him. I'm going to close with, I found this poem this week. Uh, I didn't know that Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote poetry, but he did. Um, At least one. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you don't know, he was a a German uh, Lutheran pastor. He was also a um, Nazi dissident. He, He fought against the Nazis tried to like hid people from the Nazis and all that. He ended up being arrested and and executed um, in his thirties. So what have you done with your life? And uh, (laughs) it doesn't matter because your identity is in Christ. See, I just joked on you right there. (laughs) So as the story goes, he wrote, he wrote this poem from his jail cell before he was executed. And I'm not going to read the entire thing, but I think it's really telling these last two stanzas of the of the poem, so let me read them for you, and then I got a couple questions to wrap this thing up. The poem is called Who Am I? by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Who am I? Am I then really that which other men tell of? Or am I only what I myself know of myself? Restless and longing and sick, like a bird in a cage. Zucosis. Struggling for breath as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, tossing in expectations of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I? This or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others? And before myself a contemptible woe-begone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved. Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. I wonder if that resonates with you. So I'm going to wrap us up with a couple of questions we'll throw onto the screen, and then uh, we're going to respond to the Lord in a few ways. I'll get to that in a minute. But the first question... Should come up here in just a second. Who am I? Who am I really? In other words, where do I 
where do, where do my sense of self and where do my sense of, um, of worth come from? Where do my sense of self and my sense of worth come from? Do they come from God? Do they come from something else in this world? How do you define yourself? How do, who, who are you? Okay, that's the first question. Second is this. Where have I experienced the pain of trying to establish my own identity? We've all done it. We all do it. Where have I experienced the pain of trying to establish my own identity, clinging to uh, some aspect like my sexuality or like my marital status or like my income or my uh, class or those kind of things? Um, and what pain has that brought? Because by the way, it's never enough. We never fully measure up to whatever that identity is that we portray. And then thirdly, how can resting in the identity purchased for me by Jesus bring healing, not Hawkins? <laughs> this is what happens when you voice to text the questions to this team before the service. <laughs> And I'm just going to go ahead and admit it to you because my identity is secure in Christ. So <laughs> how can resting in the identity purchased for me by Jesus bring healing, wholeness, and joy into my life? <laughs> I told you we're a big dysfunctional family, y'all. You didn't believe me. Now here we are. So... Um, <laughs> We'll get, so we'll get those edits made uh, and, and uh, put it back up. But um, where do my sense of self and my sense of worth come from? How have I experienced the pain of trying to establish my own identity? And how can resting in the identity purchased for me by Christ? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. How can that bring healing, wholeness, and joy into my life? Okay. I'm going to pray for you. We're going to respond to the Lord in a few ways here. Number one is communion. Uh, every week we offer communion here to those of you who are followers of Jesus and who want to receive this gift from the Lord. This, there's nothing magic that happens here with these elements, but there is grace bestowed upon you by the Lord when you come and, and, and receive. You take the bread, remembering his body, which was broken, to bring you this healing and wholeness. You, you dip into the juice or the wine and you are remembering in that moment the blood of Jesus which was spilled to cleanse you from all other false identities, to cleanse you from all sin and unrighteousness so that you can belong wholly to God forever. And so you come with joy, you come with thanksgiving, you come with repentance and you take the bread, dip into the juice or the wine, whatever your conscience allows um, as you make your way back to your seats, so we'll start with the back rows and make our way forward. Um, as you make your way back to your seats, there are black boxes at these two doors. If you're new and want to be known, you can fill out a connect card. Just let us know that you were here, how we might be able to pray for you. If, if you're a member here and, and need prayer, let us know on that card. Uh, and then if you're a regular and want to give to the mission of our church through uh, financial offering, you can drop it in those boxes if you don't already give online. The band's going to return, lead us in a few songs. We're going to celebrate the gospel together through song, and then I'll come up with a last word, benediction, and a couple announcements. Let me pray, and then we'll respond to the Lord. Father, what a joy to call the God of the universe Father. Lord, I know so many of us have broken relationships with human fathers. Let us not, let us not cast that onto you and see you through that lens. Let us see the world through the lens of the gospel, that we belong 
to a loving father who has purchased our redemption through the blood of Jesus, that we belong to you forever. If there's anyone in this room who does not know that, who has not experienced salvation, forgiveness, and belonging to the family of God, may today be the day of salvation. But Lord, for us who believe, help us rest in this identity that only you can provide. Help help us revel in it. Help us just rejoice in the fact that we are yours. Help us to to fight off the influence of any other identity that we, we might be tempted to cling to and make us shine brightly in this world as a people belonging to God. In a world full of people, as that quote said, in in a, a room with billions of people screaming their own name. Make us a unique people, a peculiar people, a people belonging to God in a world of self. We need you for that. So we entrust ourselves to you and ask you to fill us with your spirit. Lord, as we respond now through communion, through giving, through singing, may you be glorified and may you fill us with joy in your presence. We ask this all in the beautiful name of Jesus and we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit.